This is Justin with Mysterious Circumstances Podcast, and I have a very special guest um, that is going to do an interview with me, has graciously agreed to do an interview with me before I uh, release the, the press conference about the Bible Belt Strangler. And uh, on the line, I have Mr. Alex Campbell. Um, Alex, would uh, would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, well, I'm a teacher, mostly of history, but uh, they do let me dabble into a few electives here. I teach at Elizabethan High School here in Northeast Tennessee, and so I have a sociology class, and that's what we'll be talking about today. And uh, I live here, quiet little life with my family. Got a wonderful wife, two great kids, and so I just um, I'm always looking for something interesting to do with my teaching and. Seems like this semester we found something really good. I would definitely have to agree with you on that one. This is very, very interesting, especially for for a teacher in a high school class. It's uh pretty crazy. Um, so I do got to ask, how did you guys get started on this project? Was it your idea or the students, and how did that all come together? Okay, well, I'm always looking for um, activities. Uh, experiential project-based learning, cross-curricular learning. I've been really doing a lot of experimenting with that the last few years. And last semester, uh, the criminal justice teacher and I actually decided to kind of co-work together. And we found a local case. It's the only unsolved murder case in uh, our, our entire county's history. So we began to look into that, and it just so happened it was a 16-year-old girl, redheaded, who was found dead beside a road, partially closed. So we got into that, but, you know, whenever you get on the Internet and you start typing things like that in, well, I started finding these things about these redhead murders. And, of course, it turned out that the case we were looking at didn't have anything to do with those, but I started finding all this information about all these young ladies, uh, redheaded, found beside major highways, usually partially clothed. And so I just really became intrigued in it. And one of the things I think that did it was that the closest victim to us was left about 30 minutes away. And I guess I would have been about seven years old when she was found. So I was alive. Uh, It's relatively close to me. And yet I had never heard of that. I had never heard of the redhead murders. And it was just kind of mind boggling that a possible serial killer was operating that close to where I lived in my lifetime, and I'd never heard about it. So I think that's kind of what sparked my interest. And so after we kind of concluded our work last semester, I decided that this semester, uh, maybe the redhead murders would be a neat thing to look at. But it's a, it was a tough project, and uh, you don't always have uh, the type of students that could do something like this. So I thought maybe we'd go a different direction. And But once I got in there with my students, I realized it was a it was an amazing class. It was freshmen, sophomores, and juniors just kind of all mixed in. and But they just seemed like a really good class. And so I gave them some things to test them out to see if they were up to it. And it looked like they were a really good class. So I said, hey, you know, let's, let's see what we can do with it. So that was started. That is super interesting. And how did you start, I don't want to say recruiting students, but how did how did your students start finding this class and start getting into, I don't want to say that really this genre, but start getting into this interest? And what was it like when you and your class started connecting some of these dots and started finding out all this information that possibly could have connected these murders together? Um, yeah, that's... Uh... It's an interesting thing. I mean, it's sociology. I'm supposed to teach about uh, the the groups that humans create. So we look at things like media, peers, family, religion, friends, all those type things. And so over the years, I've used a lot of different projects to do that. So it's not necessarily a class that was focused on murder or true crime. It just seemed that last semester with the local cold case, I found some information about this. I found it exciting. I thought the students were probably finding it exciting. But I would say that most of the students had no idea. They just thought they were signing up for just an elective, sociology elective. <laughs> uh, some of the older students probably heard that I was kind of crazy and did some weird things sometimes. <laughs> but, um, you know, I don't I don't really think anybody thought they were getting into a, a true crime type um, thing. But what I really did to see if they had what it took and really get them hooked was I just – 
wrote a number on the board. I, I told him the first day we kind of went through the rules and all that. And, and I said, now look, tomorrow, if, um, if you're not willing to work hard and be creative and, and do these things I told you I expect you to do, I said, don't even come to class. Just go swap classes. Don't even show up. Cause I said, if you show up tomorrow, you're going to have to do all those things that I said, the critical thinking, the public speaking, you know, problem solving. And so, well, everybody showed up the next day, and I just had a number on the board, and I forget the exact number, but it was 250 and something million, which was the population of the United States in, in 1980. And I said, all right, here's the deal. I said, all you have to do is find one person out of those 250-some million. And they just kind of stared at me like, what is this guy talking about? So I said, that's going to be our project. We're going to find one person out of 250 million people alive in 1980. And I said, now, what would you do to start excluding people? You have 15 minutes to give me 20 categories that you could come up with that would exclude people and could lead us down to one person. And so I gave them, that was a pretty tough test, I thought. But they came up with some good things, you know, race, age, geography, <laughs> height, weight, you know, all kinds of things. And so I said, all right, you guys did a pretty good job. And they barely got the 20th one in in time. So I said, okay, tomorrow we're going to start looking for one person out of 250 million. And it just went from there. I think the kids were hooked. I think they were excited. I think they wanted to see where it would lead. And so they were just super interested. And when I told them we were going to look for a, a killer who was killing people within 30 minutes of where we lived, um, I think that they were just really excited. And they just, um, every day they just came in ready to go and, and really eager to learn. and. And so it just kind of snowballed from there. That's really, really awesome. What did you guys think when you found out that there was a podcast that was also trying to draw attention to the same same type of uh, uh, possible serial killer in the same cases that you guys were? How did that all How did that all unfold? Okay, so I had students uh, researching, and I had them looking at. Um, you know, some of them were looking at old newspaper articles. Some of them were looking at um, internet boards and posts and blogs and things. And so I had a group that was looking at Facebook. And so they said, hey, there's this Redhead Murders page on Facebook. And so I looked at it and saw that it had a contact uh, telephone number. So I actually listened to a couple of the episodes uh, that were linked there to the podcast. And mm-hmm. thought, wow, man, I really need to talk to this guy. He knows some things I don't know, and so I need to call him. So, hey, I called him, and um, he got back with me, and, and we just went from there. That's amazing how that all happens. Yeah. <laughs> it truly is. When you guys, when you and Shane hooked up and um, started going through this, now, it was it was pretty quickly when this, this all started getting attention very quickly after uh, you two connected and started putting all of your research together. Um, how was that whole process and, and what did it feel like for all that to, you know, for you and your class to start unfolding on the next level, on a bigger level? It was pretty neat because what I would do is at night, I would call people like Shane or others. And during the day, during my planning period at school, I would many times call I just started cold calling all of the police agencies involved. Actually, I spoke to every single one of those and mm-hmm. uh, built up, I think, a pretty good relationship with most of them. They were all uh, very appreciative that people were looking into this. Some of them said, hey, you know, you're doing our job for us. You're out here. You're trying to find leads. You're trying to get it in front of people. And um, I didn't really know how people would take it in law enforcement when some random guy calls and says, hey, I'm investigating your murder. You want to talk to me? <laughs> Yeah. But uh, they were mostly, you know, they were really nice, and, and they said, uh, you know, you're you're doing this work, and you're working on this profile, and, you know, you're you're bringing some attention to it, and then later on, I began to plan the press conference, and a lot of them were like, wow, you know, you're really just doing a lot of the things we're, you know, set to do, and uh, so they were just really appreciative, and, and a lot of them were really helpful, and um, they were willing to talk and give us some things, so you know, every day the students would come in and I would just say, hey, let me tell you what I've learned today or who I talked to or what they shared with me. Uh, some police agencies were willing to give us everything in their case file that was public knowledge. Uh, mm-hmm. These things included, you know, almost 40-year-old uh, newspaper articles and things that you can't find on the Internet. 
nice. but they had them and they were in the newspaper at one time. So they were willing to share them with us. So they were doing a lot of neat things like that. And that was all really cool. And just to share those things with the kids and it kind of got them excited and, and it helped us a little bit with our research. And so we just kind of took it each day at a time and said, Hey, what do we need to do? Who do we need to talk to? Where do we go with this new information we have? We listened to a few of Shane's podcasts in, in school and we'd break them up. We might listen to a few minutes. We'd stop. We'd talk about it. And um, so that was all really helpful. But then you, you get this information. And uh, I think the big breakthrough was when we found an FBI profiler that would actually come and speak with us. And I thought that was a long shot. I was actually just hoping for maybe like a video call or something. But he actually said, I'd like to drive up. It was almost a four-hour drive. And he agreed wow. to drive all the way up and meet us. And after it was over, he was he was really excited about how hard the kids had been working and how much they knew about the case and how much they knew about profiling and his job. And so he and I sat down after school and I said, hey, uh, would you be willing to look at what we come up with and just kind of give us your opinion on it? Is it good work or do you think we're on the right path? Or have we totally missed it because I'm not an expert. You know, I'm just using open source things off the Internet. So he said, yeah, I'll, I'll take a look at it. But what he really shared with us was if we wanted to show that there was a connection between murders, and that was one of the problems, I think, with the Redhead murders. You know, they'd had a task force back in the 80s that met a couple of times. It was hosted kind of by the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation. Several states would come, and they never could come to a consensus whether these 11 murders were related. And I think the problem was they were looking at too many murders. Um, of those 11, there's a few that are very different. But what we found was that when we looked at six, they seemed to all match. So he told us that if we could do four things, it would virtually prove that they were related. Number one was the same MO. Uh, number two was the same offender signature. Number three, they had to be in the same geographic area. And number four, in the same time period. And he said, mm -hmm. if you have those four things that match, then it's ridiculous to think that there's six separate killers doing it the same way for the same reason in the same area at the same time. So he said, work on those four things. So that's what we began to do. And when we did that, plus the profile, and we sent it to him, and I asked the kids, you know, before I hit send on the email, I said, are you guys sure you're ready for a professional profiler to go through <laughs> your stuff? I mean, and they were like, yeah, we think we've just done the best job we can do. Yeah. So we sent it, and the next day, he was, already had a reply, and he said, wow, that, that was amazing work. And he said, I, I can't believe that high school students came up with this. And he said he could not disagree with any of their findings. And he said that he felt that it was one killer and that we had done the work that pretty much, you know, found the support for that. That is so great. That is so great. So after you know, this kind of blew up and um, you guys got the media attention and you realized that you were on the right track. And that was confirmed by an FBI profiler that, I mean, the, the feeling of accomplishment had to be just amazing. Um, how did you and your students react um, when it came time to the press conference and afterward and actually getting the recognition that you guys had accomplished something that other people had swept under the rug or ignored or not been able to really connect the dots on how, I guess, you know, how was, how was everybody's reaction? How are they feeling? Well, I think when we, we got the return email, um, and by the way, I told the kids also, he was going to be grading their profile. <laughs> And I said, hey, what grade do you give? You know, and he said, hey, I would give them an A without a doubt. So they were All excited right. about that. But I think the thing is that, you know, knowledge is power. And, yes. um, and with power comes responsibility. So once we knew we were sitting on some information that we felt was helpful to the case, we had to decide what we were going to do with it. And since nobody had really kind of said this before, and there was so little on the Redhead murders and so little attention had been paid. We decided that we needed to, to be very responsible with our information and try to help people with it. 
So I, I challenged the students. I said, hey, you know, what do you want to do? And they decided that a press conference to share the information with law enforcement and media would be the best thing. The problem was I had never put on a press conference. I have never even been to a press conference, and neither had any of my students. So we had a media outreach person who uh, works for our school uh, district, and I just called her and said, hey, can you come down here and help us? So we put together a strategy. Uh, the big the big push was to get um, media in the six areas where the victims were found to cover it because we thought if anybody saw something, uh, it might have been during the disposing of bodies, uh, a truck pulled over, a person coming out of the woods, something. So we said we need to get the media in those six areas to cover it because the truth was we didn't know where they had – many of them had been abducted. So at least we could start there. So I had the students break up into groups. And we were shooting for print media, TV media, online, social media, anything we could do, radio even. Who can we contact? And basically, we just started calling people. And we put together a media kit and a press release. And we basically provided the MO, the signature, the timeline, the profile, all those things. Uh, Gave them a little background on the murders and gave them a little narrative of what we've been doing that semester. And then we just picked a day. And uh, said it and said, this is when it's going to be. So we just started calling media, started calling law enforcement. Every law enforcement agency was supportive. Um, some of them didn't have the manpower to actually come. But we did have seven law enforcement agents there uh, standing behind the students at the press conference. So that was great, kind of just showing their support and being there for the students and kind of showing some solidarity. So... um you know, we just started reaching out to people and saying, look, this is when it's going to be. And, of course, it got super busy. Uh, the students had to learn how to write a press release. They had to learn how to talk to people. They had to learn um, how to present. I wanted uh, two or three of the students to actually present. So we worked on our public speaking. We uh, practiced on our speech writing. Um, we thought about what it should look like. I had kids who were kind of artistic, you know, saying, hey, how should the setup look? How does it, you know, what makes it look professional? Um, so a lot of things went in, a lot of learning went into the press conference, but we were actually very successful. Every uh, one of those six areas where the victims were found has had a story both on the TV channel that serves that area and in the print media that serves the area. So they have all been reached, and it was actually unbelievable that we did a little better than that. We actually got on some national um websites, uh, ID networks, crime feed, picked it up, Oxygen Network, put it out there. So um, I know that podcasters have a big reach international. Mm -hmm. So it was actually better than we thought. And I've even been talking to some uh, production companies who uh, produce TV shows and documentary films, and they're interested in it. And I'm also talking with the FBI. Uh, They have a thing called the FBI Bulletin. And they put it out once a month, and they've asked me to submit a story. And it takes a lot of time. Our school year's wrapping up, but I just, I just can't stop. Now that we have this opportunity to get it in front of a lot of people, I think we just need to keep going with it and um, see how many people we can get it in front of. Because we sit at the press conference, and I really do feel this way. Somebody saw something, or they've heard something. And if we can just get this in front of the right person, then I feel that maybe they'll come forward and do the right thing, and it could lead to a break in the case that could they could help get some answers for some people. That's very, very true, and that is so, so admirable um, from somebody who's been into a lot of unsolved cases. The what you guys did, and I, and the timing, and how it all come together is 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 nothing short of amazing. You and your students are just. I admire you guys a lot. Um, have any of your students me- even mentioned maybe pursuing this type of work as a career or anything yeah. recently? Well, it was interesting. I have, I have 23 students in the class, and I think at the beginning, there was probably about three students who were considering <laughs> criminal justice. And now I would say the number's probably about 23. So it seems <laughs> that every one of them are just so excited. Uh, I kid you not. Somebody asked them, I forget who it was, and I think two-thirds of the kids probably raised their hand. Nice. And 
and I always feel that there's no boring subject, only boring teachers. Yeah. And sometimes I've been that boring teacher. I didn't want to be, but uh, I think every subject can be really fascinating if we can just find a way to get the students excited and uh, let them do something that's real and something that's meaningful. And um, I think this just turned into one of those kind of kind of deals and you know the students just just ran with it and uh like i was saying earlier i feel that maybe just a lot of things came together uh, the fact that shane was working on it independently of us started about the same time the fact that there is some dna stuff being worked on in one of the cases that may lead to a break first one in 30 years um the golden gate killer um i mean excuse me yeah. golden state killer being found and just the impact that the true crime kind of uh, citizen sleuth kind of thing had on that yeah. and the attention it brought to it and how the new DA just kind of answered all this attention and said, hey, we're going to have a renewed focus on it. And that came out just a, a few weeks before the press conference. And I think just for whatever reason, there's a lot of attention on cases like this. And hey, you know, if this is how it comes about, I think it's wrong for us not to go with that momentum. And, you know, maybe it's just going to work together. I, I don't I don't know why, but I have a good feeling that, that something good's going to come of it. Uh, I'm really excited to see what happens with the Knox County, Kentucky victim DNA to see if she can be identified. I'm excited to see if the publicity the students have gotten for these murders maybe leads to something. I actually had a lady call me. This was before the press conference, but she saw some of the coverage kind of leading up to the press conference. And she was from West Virginia. She's probably about five hours from me. And she said, hey, um, I've known something about something that she felt was related for, um, I guess that would be 32 years. Wow. And she said, I just haven't said anything. She said, I always felt it was really weird, and I thought it might have been related. But anyway, she, she called me, and she, she found me. She looked me up at school and, and left me a message, and I called her back, and she told me this kind of interesting story, and she's redheaded, and this person she had interaction with, she felt it could have been the killer or definitely into something pretty nefarious. And um, I said, you know, why did you call me? Why didn't you tell the police? And she actually said that she didn't think that they cared. Wow. And I think just the fact that she saw the story and realized that, hey, somebody does care. She just wanted to tell what she knew. And I don't know if it's related to her case, but I told her that I'd been speaking with the state police and that there were people that cared. And I said, would you be willing to talk to them? And she said, absolutely. So I called him that day and he said, hey, I'll call her and interview her and, you know, see what she says. So I think maybe that just if people find out that, you know what, people do care, then maybe they're going to open up and they're going to maybe call and they're going to, um, you know, talk to somebody and tell what they know. And, and I hope it leads to something, um, you know, even something small. Uh, could lead to a big break. I had a, somebody ask me, they said, do you really think this case could be solved? And I said, yes. And they said, how hard? I said, easy. You know, one piece of information could could literally solve the case. And if you solve one, if these six are related and we feel they are, then you solve all six. And it would be as simple as, hey, I saw a truck where this body was found and I thought it was kind of weird, but hey, I was 16 or I was 18 and uh, you know, I didn't say anything, but I saw a name on that truck. And if they just remembered a, a name or what the truck looked like, uh, that could lead to a solving of the case quickly. So I really do feel that all this stuff kind of coming together at the right time and that people do know something. And if we can just get it in front of the right person, I have faith that they'll come forward and, and maybe we can get some some real answers here. I agree. It's like you uh, mentioned earlier, somebody heard something, somebody saw something. And like you just mentioned again, it's uh, all it takes is that one thing to just open up the floodgates to any case, let alone one of this magnitude. Yeah. But um, but Alex, I would like to thank you very, very much for your time. And, um, you know, on on behalf of uh, an entire community that does this in their free time as a hobby 
or even as a living for that matter. Like uh, on behalf of all of us, thank you guys. Um, You guys are fighting the good fight and just realize that there are a lot of people out there. You know, there's a lot of eyes on you guys. There's a lot of ears on you guys and keep fighting the good fight, man. Don't stop. You know, I hope your students know that. I hope they have a sense of accomplishment because between you and your students and, and Shane and everybody coming together the way they did, I really think that there, you know, there, there could be a resolution to this real soon. Yeah. You know, the hardest thing I think is giving up. Um, This is my last week with students and, you know, the project's over and I'll probably not be teaching sociology next year just because the way things are working out at school. And, you know, I don't want to give it up. And I've already talked to the criminal justice teacher and said, hey, man, would you continue the work? There's so much more that needs to be done. And he said, yeah. And then another thought we had was maybe we can find a school in each of the areas where the victims were found and they can pick up the work. Because there's some things they can do that we can't. They can, you know, talk to people who remember when they were found or they can talk to the person who wrote the story for the local paper or the retired you know, police chief. And they can actually do all that work right there in their community. So actually, I'm reaching out. And I think I've found two or three schools that are willing to help us. I'd like to find a school in each of the regions uh, where the bodies were found and see if they'll team up and take it upon themselves next year to continue the work. And I think with everybody working together and just doing what they can do where they can do it, uh, I think a lot of that work can be pulled together and a, and a lot of weight can be pulled on this thing. So it's it's going to be really hard to give it up as far as officially at school. But I'm not going to give it up as far as my personal mission. And uh, it's just kind of hard to let it go. I find myself thinking about it all the time. So uh, hopefully it's not the end. Hopefully work will continue uh, until a resolution is found. And I appreciate your guys' support and helping us get the word out. And, uh, you know, you guys are part of the solution, too. So I'm going to say thank you for that. That's what we do. You know, it's, um, you know, it's about helping find answers and you know, there's there's families out there who who knew these women who, you know, at the end of the day, have no idea what happened to their to their daughters, you know. And yeah, I don't I don't for a second believe that in the long run, all these women are Jane. They had a name at some point in time. I hope you and your class know that you do have a support system here and me and Shane are always very reachable and we have a big community that that is always willing to help out as well. So you guys are not alone. That is for sure. Well, thank you. You know, I'm actually looking forward to maybe us having a talk again in the future, whenever something really great comes out of this and we can sit back and um, talk about, Hey man, look at all the stuff that happened (laughs) because of this. That's that's what I'm really hoping for that. We'll get some information that leads to some things. So maybe that'll happen one of these days. You know what? It's, it's a very good possibility at this point. And, and like you had said, uh, you know, to go ahead and repeat, you don't give up, tell your, tell your students not to give up. You know, it's very admirable what all of you are doing and please keep it up. All right. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate this opportunity. Oh, thank you, Alex. I appreciate it as well, sir. All right. Have a great one. Thank you, buddy. Good talk you to too, you. You too, sir. You too. All right. Bye bye. Bye bye. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It is my privilege and honor to welcome you to our press conference. My name is William Bowers, and I'm a part of Mr. Campbell's sociology class. Many of you today are asking the same question. Why are we here? Why are we doing this? Why do we even care about this? Well, it starts 37 years ago when a man murdered an unknown woman and laid her body beside an interstate. Four years later, five more women shared the same fate. Those women would be founded along interstates and highways across multiple states. At the time of their death, the women were founded with reddish hair. Law enforcement at the time couldn't solve the murders due to the women never being identified and their transient lifestyles. The cases became cold for over 35 years until a few people asked why hasn't the murderer and the women have been identified yet. On a cold winter day in January, my teacher, Mr. Campbell, asked me and my fellow classmates this simple question. How can one person be found in over 250 million people? We looked at each other with puzzled faces. 
And then we started to make categories like race, hair color, occupation, etc. By the end of class, we had 20 different categories that can be used that can at least narrow the list of people enough to find that one person. After that, we spent months learning about the red-headed murders. We learned what a serial killer is. We looked into the lives of some of the most infamous serial killers like Ted Bundy and Richard Chase. With the information provided and what we have learned, we were able to create an MO, a signature, and a profile for the murderer. We had help and support from many people, and with the support of them, we had the strength to create this press conference up today. I would like to thank many wonderful people today. I would like to thank Campbell County Sheriff's Office, Carter County Sheriff's Department, Elizabethan Police Department, Tennessee Bureau of Investigation, and Kentucky State Police, who are representing multiple counties across multiple states, who are willing and determined to give justice to those women and judgment for the murder. Crittenden County Sheriff's Office, Chiefland County Sheriff's Office, Knox County Sheriff's Office, and West Virginia State Police sadly are not here today, but they are working on this case as well. I would also like to thank the media for coming. You are our best ally to spread, spread our information across the United States and bring awareness to our case. And finally, the students and our teacher, Mr. Campbell. Without the hard work, grit, and determination by the students, we would never have this press conference today. Martin Luther King Jr. once said, Human progress is, either, is neither automatic nor inedible. Every step towards the goal of justice requires sacrifice, suffering, and struggle. The tireless distortions and passionate concerns of dedicated individuals. The men and women that you see here today are dedicated to these cases. The tireless work and effort by these individuals are the reason why these cases have been brought back. I also had the opportunity to introduce our first speaker, Mr. Shane Waters. Mr. Waters is the creator of the Outer Shadows podcast. On the podcast, Mr. Waters works on the cold cases and seeks out the information about those cases. He has done tremendous work on his podcast for a human victim advocacy, and without the help and support from him, we will never have this press conference today. Thank you, and welcome to our press conference. Hello, everyone. Hello, everyone. I am Shane Waters, the podcaster of the True Crime Investigative Podcast, Out of the Shadows. Two and a half years ago, I started my podcast because I wanted to share the stories about cold cases that have eluded the public's mind. On every case, I would allow family members to speak for victims about their loved ones because it's important for me, for listeners, to grasp the, the reality of the situation. These are real people who had goals and dreams like you and I. But all of that was robbed from them because of the actions of another. Near the end of last year, a friend and a fellow podcaster, Justin Rimmel, shared with me a bizarre series of murders known as the Redhead Murders. Just by hearing the basics behind the case, I was intrigued. But quickly I came to the realization that the five-minute summary that my colleague gave me was all of the information out there on these murders. You see, there was a big two-word two problem with this case that makes it almost untouch, untouchable to storytellers like myself, Jane Doe. Out of the six victims that we believe could be a part of the Redhead murders, all but one remain unidentified people. That's right. After more than 30 years, only one of these victims has a name. To make matters worse, there was little to no information known about the one victim with a name, and I couldn't even locate a photo of her when I was putting together the episode. 
How can a podcaster cover a case involving six women with no family to speak with, with only five minutes of information on a storytelling platform? I felt defeated. I felt like I had no choice but to put the case down and move on to something easier. I can remember sitting at my computer about to drag this file on my desktop titled Redheads to the trash when I realized that this is the exact thing that is preventing this killer from being caught. More than that, I knew that this is what the killer assumed would happen each time he targeted a new victim. I believe he assumed that society wouldn't care that these women were gone. After all, if there is no family to come forward to fight for them, surely it will not be a story worth telling. My friend and colleague, Gemma Hoskins, who some of you may know as the grassroots amateur investigator from Netflix docuseries, The Keepers, once told me that when all hope seems lost and you find yourself up against a wall and feel defeated, there's only one thing to do. You keep on keeping on. Gemma and I have been working together the past several months because there wasn't enough information for a podcast episode. So we decided to find our own information. On the series, we have put together for listeners that, so they can join us up at the very beginning of our journey. And they will continue with us until there isn't anything left behind for us to find. We are five episodes in, and trust me, we are going to keep on going. Today I realize that I have driven more than 5,000 miles from my home in northern Indiana to travel where, the, where these victims were found. A couple days ago I drove past a location where the daughter to one of my best friends lost her life, and I saw a cross. I realized that that cross symbolized not only a lost life, but also a family that refused to forget. So I made six crosses by hand, and I painted them red. And over the last few days, I have been retracing some of my previous travels to put a cross in each of these locations that the victims were found in. Three down, three to go. If there is anything I have learned over the last two and a half years, it is the importance of having a family that continues to push the cases not only in front of detectives, but also the media and community. Today I stand here, along with the high school sociology class, to remind the world of these six women. Today we are their family. In the third episode of my series, my listeners heard from a young woman who believes that this Jane Doe, found in Barberville, Kentucky, is her mother. One day her mother gave birth to her little newborn girl, Elizabeth, and soon after she disappeared, you are about to hear a student read a letter from Elizabeth about how this entire ordeal has affected her life. As you listen, I want you to remember that we all have a past. There are things we all have done that we aren't exactly proud of. But that doesn't mean that we deserve to die. These women may have a similar past, but they were not less of a person for it. If the coward responsible for these murders is watching, I have a message for you. We will not stop. We will not forget. Honestly, I never gave up hope. But I didn't think I would live to see this day or to even be a part of this unraveling story. As a young girl growing up, it was just my dad and I. I never really thought about where my mother was. I knew I had one somewhere. I just wasn't old enough to understand at the time. My dad worked long hours every day. After his job, he would come home and cut lawns as a second job. On Saturday mornings, we would walk down to town and eat breakfast at the shake shop. Afterwards, we would go and play Pac-Man at the laundromat. This became our Saturday morning tradition. Sometimes he would let me go and cut a yard with him. I remember sitting on his lap steering the riding mower. I loved helping him. The smell of fresh cut grass still brings me back to these days. Even though he worked a lot, I can't recall a time he didn't provide. 
He taught me responsibilities early in life that I, have, that I may not have seen the importance in when I was younger, but I have learned I am so grateful for now. He was always a hard worker, but I always sensed a certain sadness about him. It wasn't until age 10 or 11 I discovered I had siblings. Most of my childhood had been spent assuming I was an only child, until finding out I had five other siblings. As I began reaching out to them in my teenage years, I became very curious about my birth mother. This curiosity also peaked after a very important woman in my life had passed away in 1997. This woman would occasionally keep me when my father had to work and became a huge inspiration in my life. I remember sitting in her lap one day and asking her if she would be my mother, and to my surprise, she said yes. Up until this point, I had never attended a church service before. I thank God for placing her in my life. I have no idea where I would be without her influence in my younger years. I was only 14 when she passed away, but in the eight years I knew her, she became my world. When she passed away, I was furious. Why would God take something so good away from me? Will anyone love me the way that she loved me? And then I remembered someone already did. We don't always understand God's plans over our lives. We just have to trust them. In 2002, I graduated high school. This was the first day my dad ever told me he was proud of me. It was very bittersweet at the time. I started thinking more and more about you, Mom. Where are you? Are you alive? Did you leave on your own, or did something happen that prevented you from coming back? Over time, I've heard stories about you that no child should ever have to hear about their mother. I tried asking Dad about you, but he would become so angry, and I never understood why. I even began to wonder if he saw you when he looked at me, and if that triggered memories about you he would rather not speak of. To this day, I still do not know the truth. Mom, if you can hear me, I want you to know that there was always an emptiness in me due to your absence, but also a connection. You have always been with me, maybe not in the flesh, but I have carried you in my heart. All my life, I hope to find you alive and well, to greet you one day with open arms and wrap you in a tight embrace, to tell you that even in not knowing you, I have loved you, reassure you that I was never mad and that everything will be okay. Not knowing the circumstances of your disappearance has left me with many thoughts. You were last seen in March of 1985. It is now 2018. 33 years have passed and no sign of you until recently. I am now 34 years old and have four children of my own. I'm still searching for you and I have a feeling the answers I have been seeking will soon be discovered. I'm feeling more helpful than ever. As you can obviously tell, there's been a lot of work that's gone into this press conference by these excellent students. And my name is Alex Campbell, and it's a great pleasure that I get to work with these young people every day. And during the course of this semester, uh, the students have worked with a professional profiler and members of the law enforcement community. And these experts explained to us that if you have the same MO and the same offender signature in the same geographical area in the same period of time, then it's almost assuredly the same person responsible. So as a class, we began to look at each of the roughly dozen cases that are oftentimes uh, referred to as the redhead murders that took place from 1978 until 2001. But there were six of these murders that stood out because they were so similar. So our students began to focus on these cases. These murders occurred between 1980 and 85, and the bodies were discovered between 1983 and 85. So we knew that we had six murders occurring in the same time period. So then we looked at geographic location, and we found the same six murders, three in Tennessee, Campbell, Cheatham, and Greene County, plus one in Wetzel County, West Virginia, with one just across the border in Knox County, Kentucky, and finally another one uh, just across the border in West Memphis, Arkansas. They were all linked because of not just geographic proximity, but because they were connected by highways and interstates along the Knoxville-Nashville corridor, with Knoxville being the geographic center of the crimes. So now we felt that we had the same time period and the same geography. So we moved on to develop an MO of the unsub. The MO is what the perpetrator does to affect the crime and to escape. Oftentimes, this is thought of as the how of the killing. Then we created the offender signature which is what personal or psychological gratification the murderer uh, gets from the killing. 
oftentimes it is referred to as the why. So once we had these two items and we began to compare them, we realized we had the same MO and the same offender signature in all six cases. So after concluding that we had the same location, same time period, same MO, and same signature, we enlisted the help of professionals in evaluating our work. We consulted and they agreed with us that these six murders are most likely the work of one person. So we have shared this information with law enforcement officials and today we're making these documents publicly available to the media and the public, including the eight-page psychological profile. To quickly summarize that profile, the killer is most likely a lone white male that was born between 1936 and 1962, putting him between 56 and 82 years old. He is five foot nine to six foot two, with an average to athletic or stocky build, weighing between 180 and 270 pounds. He lived and or worked out of the greater Knoxville area, possibly Nashville, as a truck driver. He most likely started driving a truck around 1980 and probably left that job in 1985. He's likely right-handed, has an IQ that is slightly above 100, sexual orientation is heterosexual, his killing motive is mission, which means that he sees victims as a way to accomplish an end. He is possible of long-term relationships with others, uh, he most likely has had long-term girlfriends, possibly even married, and children. He likely grew up in an unstable home with drug and alcohol abuse, and he could have previous criminal charges from interactions with authorities because of solicitation of prostitution or traffic violations associated with his job. There would be no history of mental illness, and his religious affiliation is most likely Christianity. We believe there is a good chance this perpetrator is still alive and possibly living in the Knoxville area. Because there was obviously a link between these six murders, we needed a way to distinguish these six victims from about the dozen that are oftentimes referred to as the redhead murders. We also wanted to focus attention for the first time on the likelihood that these six murders were committed by the same person. So since these murders happened around Tennessee, in what is oftentimes referred to as the Bible Belt, and most of the victims were strangled or suffocated, we have decided to name this serial killer the Bible Belt Strangler. Sadly, murder has been around as long as humanity. People think they can commit such acts and get away from the prying eyes of public and they'll never be seen. They'll think there'll be no witnesses. They think they're too good at their craft. They think they're too smart. But often, when some time has passed, they feel like they're never going to be caught. But the monster we now seek took the lives of six women that we feel he intentionally targeted because they were out on their own alone, with no family and no friends. Their lives were most likely stolen from them in the dark back parking lots of truck stops and rest areas, and then dumped along lonely highways at night, where he thought no one would see him. And he's eluded justice for almost 40 years. But the Bible Belt Strangler's wrong. He made a mistake. Somebody saw something. Somebody's heard something. The blood of these six women that was spilled into the overgrown hedges of our nation's highways and interstates has gone unnoticed for way too long. And today we are here to recognize these voices and give them justice for which they're still crying out. We want the media to hear their cry as well. So the people out there with the information that law enforcement needs to identify these victims and solve these crimes can come forward. So Bible Belt Strangler, we know you're out there. We know that somebody has information to help find you and hold you accountable. And after today, everyone knows that we're looking for you. And today, everyone knows that we are our sister's keepers because we're like family. And this time, no matter how hard you squeeze your evil hands, you will never be able to silence their cries. Good evening. Good evening. My name is Mason Peterson, and as you've heard, we started on this cold case and is on 35 years since the first body was found in Wetzel County, West Virginia. To this day, all cases remain unsolved, and we only know, and we only know the identity of one out of six victims. So we need the public's help. We need, we need you to be aware of this case. We need you to share this case around with any info that we are giving you or what you already know. We, we need you to find people that may know something we don't. 
then we need then the people with this information should contact the police there's no doubt that someone saw something and thought it was probably nothing or it's not that important it could be something whether big or small it could lead to a big break we want to help remember and identify the victims because it helps helps the police find what correlations our victims have with our perpetrator and bring him closer to justice we also want to help the police find the Bible Belt Strangler so he can be held accountable for his actions. We want to thank all the media who are becoming an advocate for these victims and getting their stories out to the public. Thank you to all of the dedicated members of law enforcement who are working on these cases and are ready to take the tips you provide and use them to identify these victims and the person responsible for their death. As Winston Churchill once said, now this is not the end. It is not even the beginning of the end, but it is perhaps the end of the beginning. Thank you. Leslie Earhart from the TBI was supposed to be here. She's their public information officer. Unfortunately, she was ill and um, her assistant was called away at the last moment. So she's asked me uh, to say a few things about the students. She said she appreciates the hard work of the students. And uh, she supports young people and their advocacy for victims. And they are going to be handling the tips for this case. Uh, you can contact them at 1-800-TBI-FIND. They will make sure that all of the tips and information get distributed to the different police agencies. And now I'm going to bring on the Kentucky State Police. Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Trooper Shane Jacobs. I'm the Public Affairs Officer for Post 10 Harlan. Um, First of all, we would like to thank Elizabethton uh, High School, the administrators, um, for allowing us to come over, uh, be able to share information with the uh, local city, county, state agencies over here with the case that we have in Kentucky. Um, again, it's uh, very important that as law enforcement that we share information, uh, especially since this is uh, multi-states. Uh, we're here to, to try to get that information out, to share it, to figure out exactly what we have, to hopefully bring closure to these families and hopefully identify some of these. Uh, we're hopefully that um, we're very close. We feel that we're very close in Kentucky to identifying uh, our, our cold case uh, individual. So uh, again, guys, the hard work here you've put in this high school by keeping this uh, alive, uh, by trying to uh, help us share information. It's been very vital and, and we're very thankful for that. And on behalf of the Kentucky State Police, we're very thankful that you all allowed us to come over here and to be part of this. So thank you. Uh, also, anyone with information uh, can contact Post 10 Harlan at 1-606-573-3131. Uh, um, behind me is Detective Aaron Frederick. He's been working on this case along with our intelligence analyst, uh, Chris Daniels, uh, both with the Kentucky State Police. They've come over today to assist with this. But again, uh, if you have information, you can contact Post 10 Harlan and um, try to get this uh, closure to these families. So thank you. We have just a few moments for uh, any questions anybody has. I ask that you would step to the microphone, just identify which agency you're with, and then please direct the question to the person you would like to answer it. Does anyone have a question they would like to ask? So my name is Alex Campbell. I teach sociology at Elizabethan High School, and that class is open to any grade level. So I have um, actually freshmen, juniors, and sophomores. I don't have any seniors in there this year. How many students? Uh, 23. 23. This was a full year project. Actually, no. It was a semester-long class, and we actually took a little break to do another project in the middle. But I would say we've probably worked on this about 80% of the semester. Can you talk about what Yes, so we had one group of students that was working on uh, media. So we had people doing TV, uh, print media, et cetera. Somebody was looking into social media and online, and they found that they had just been created a Redhead Murders Facebook page. So there was a, a phone number contact on there, and I called Shane. We talked a couple days later, and so that was the beginning. Can you talk a little bit about, I guess, kind of the process and how you all went about making this this suspect profile? Yes, um, of course, I'm not a criminal justice teacher, but I just tried to get as many different um, resources that I could online, uh, consulted criminal justice teachers here. Of course, we had law enforcement officials helping us. So we, we put those together, 
and the students felt that they could come up with 21 characteristics that would help identify this person. Uh, the class originally started, I found that there was about 250 million people living in the United States in 1980. So I said, your challenge is to find one out of 250 million. And they actually thought that these 21 characteristics would really narrow it down to, to just a few people. So that's how the 21 characteristics came about. We will, by the way, be emailing all of those to media and law enforcement that are here today. You'll have the full eight-page profile, plus the signature, plus the MO, plus the signature, um, excuse me, the offender timeline and the victim timeline. They'll all be in your media packet. Uh, anything else to answer your question? Okay, thank you. Uh, no, sociology has a state curriculum. Uh, yes. Um, so I am supposed to cover um, all types of things that deal with sociology. This includes family, includes socioeconomic status, it includes uh, media, peers, all these types of things. And so I do feel that we covered those, uh, but we just did it wrapped around this idea of the project. What was your motivation for taking Last semester we worked with Carter County on one of their cold cases. And in some ways, uh, the lady who lost her life was similar to some of these. So as we were doing research, I actually stumbled upon these and thought that maybe this would be something interesting my students would, would like to take up. And when we found out that one of the victims was found about 30 minutes from here, uh, the students were really interested. So we just decided to go that route. Are you excited about the involvement you are, but can you speak to that a little bit more? Yeah, uh, we're excited. The press conference was a lot of work. Uh, we appreciate you guys. Without you all, we wouldn't have a press conference. So a lot of work went into that, but we really want to see what comes of it. And the students the other day uh, insisted that if any breaks in the case occur, they wanted to get back together in the future and just talk about maybe that some of their actions had led to some good results down the line somewhere. So I really look forward to that meeting. This, this case spans over 30 years, and you know, these kids are they're teenagers now. What kept their attention? So a case that's, you know, so, so old, so dated. I don't really know. Um, I think in part the fact that they, they were unknown and they didn't have a family made a lot of the kids feel like they needed somebody to advocate for them. And um, so I think that was interesting. I think the location, that they were kind of close to where we live. Of course, I think CSI and criminal justice are kind of interesting now. There's a lot of TV shows and things about that. So I think that was part of it, too. But I think the closer they got into the case and looking at the case, they realized that they might actually be able to change something. Um, I think especially young people today feel like if they do work, they want something to come out of it. And I believe that this press conference made them feel like that in the future something good could come from their work. A few times, yes. One of the other projects they did this semester was they had the Todd McKee Memorial Ceremony for the agent who died at Waco, who actually graduated from here. And uh, that was a pretty powerful connection. Actually, his parents brought the kids uh, pizza the other day and had lunch with them to just thank them for what they had done. But we've also had things like a Vietnam Veterans Welcome Home that was very powerful here. So we just have great students at this school. And anytime you give them a challenge, it seems like they always rise up and meet it and usually even exceed expectations. So in a way, I've kind of gotten used to our students just doing amazing things. What do you want to take from this I'm sorry, can you say it again? <coughs> what, what do you want to take away from this shooting? I want them to know, and I think they know this now, that you're never too young to make a change in the world. And when you see a problem in the world, uh, you don't have to wait on somebody else to fix it. That no matter your age, uh, you can use the skills that you have to go out there and try to make the world a better place. And so I think they'll take that with them. And when they see problems in the future, they're going to, instead of complaining, they're going to move to actually make them better. With all the information that's been presented now, is this going to be considered a, a serial killer case by TBI? Or do we I do not know. Um, you can direct those to Leslie Earhart at the Public Information Office, uh, so I'm not sure on that. But uh, we felt that with the work that we had done with law enforcement and their encouragement that they also felt that it was one person, that they deserve a name, and it would separate these six from the more than a dozen cases that are oftentimes very different from these six. Would you like to bring research in cases outside of That's something we thought about. This may be my last semester teaching sociology, and I think the students really want it to go forward. 
So we've thought about trying to work with other schools. I actually have been contacted by two schools, one in the Knoxville region, one in the Memphis region, and they thought that maybe they could do some work in the coming years on the victims in their areas. So I think the students would really like to see that other people have taken up their work and it's not stopped. So hopefully that can happen. Thank you. I think uh, social media helps in things like this. I think there's sometimes that social media does not help. Um, there's a, uh, you have to separate the gossip from the facts. Uh, but in something like this, it definitely helps. And it's technology. A lot of these cases will be solved today because of technology. In the 70s and 80s, when I started my law enforcement career, we did not have this technology. So you had to go out and talk to people and interview people and create the uh, physical evidence to solve cases. Extremely difficult to do. So today's technology, it helps tremendously. And what these kids have done, uh, it's, it speaks well of them in the program here. They've done a fantastic job. They came up and worked on one of our cases that's, what, 25, 30 years old, somewhere in there. Uh, and I think they would have been very beneficial in helping solve that, but all of the actors in that case have since passed away, so the solvability was not there. But uh, it, uh, it's a double-edged sword, I guess. But uh, in this case, much more good than bad. I'd like to echo that, too, because on Kentucky's, uh, our, our case, um, we're hopefully to put, about ready to put a name with this individual, and it all comes back from Facebook. Uh, we did interviews and interviews on this cold case, um, and a lady in North Carolina contacted us and feels that she has information and knows who this lady is, or Jane Doe. And um, we went down, took DNA uh, from what we feel possibly the daughter. Um, now at this time we're waiting on uh, results from that, but it all comes back from a Facebook post. The lady in North Carolina saw this post, interviews that we put out, so again, yeah, social media is, uh, in, this, in this instance, is, is huge. It's very vital that as law enforcement agencies across the, uh, the nation, we share information, we work together, and when, when that happens, uh, you know, cases get solved. And, and as, that's what we're doing today. And we, again, you know, we're just thankful that you all have asked us to come over and be part of this, to be able to share this information and hopefully uh, catch this individual. Uh, William Bowers. I'm a junior. Can you talk a little bit about uh, what it was like to be a part of a, a project like this and, and how it compares to some of your other classes? Well, it was it was unique at first because, like, when you think of sociology, you think something about, like, your cranium or something like that. And then we really broke it down. This pretty much the study of people in groups. So that's really what sociology is all about. So it was unique to work on this, and there's not really a lot of classes that uh, go into this type of style of uh, teaching, because pretty much uh, Mr. Campbell, he gave us the resources, and then uh, we talked about it a little bit, we learned from what we uh, got through this, and then uh, we, started to, we started to actually go into the cases and actually bring those resources with us. So we started to learn how to do this through our resources that was gained from Mr. Campbell. And this is pretty incredible what we have what we have here today. Were you able to 
I mean, it's kind of tough because uh, some of us might not be here the next week. But since we got this press conference here today and we have everybody here, everybody's in full account and full attendance, uh, everybody everybody wanted to do this. So like, so pretty much we were ready. So, so. Was this an empowering experience for you guys knowing that you might be able to contribute to some Yeah, it's a wonderful experience because uh, teenagers like us, we usually don't get an experience like this. Usually said with uh, many of the FBI, the TBI, CIA, whatever law enforcement agency gets to do this, we we never get to have this type of chance, and it's wonderful that we have this chance. Did you or your classmates get interested in law enforcement because of something like this? Was well, some of us do want to go into a career of criminal justice, and I believe it has grown on some of more of our uh, classmates throughout this week. Uh, throughout these uh, couple months, uh, but all in all, just the case, uh, the cases themselves interest us to actually do this. Does anyone else have a question for any of the students? I'd love for them to speak if you want to ask them anything. Anybody else? Okay, so whenever we pack up here, I know some of you may want to get some direct quotes from them. Uh, be looking for the media packet. And remember, media, you guys have a very important job. Uh, if we don't get the word out about these cases, then the people who saw something uh, can't speak to law enforcement. So I appreciate you guys being here today. Have a nice afternoon.